is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, We had a big shinding there at the Media Research Center, 30th anniversary, and I was unable to attend, and uh, I did do a videotape. I think the folks here will like, but I want to salute the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell, and all the folks here who do a magnificent job and have for 30 years in monitoring and challenging and engaging the leftist media in this country. They've made a huge difference over 30 years, too. Bozell is one of the smartest conservatives and strategists, period. And he's a dear friend of mine. He's also a fighter. And so we want to salute them and congratulate them. All right, there's a lot to get to today. North Korea, what the president did today is very, very important with respect to China, as it applies to North Korea. And it's going to make a difference, and it affects their banks. And I've been focused on this now for a very, very long time, but we'll get to that in a little bit. This health care proposal of the Republicans, I've said we need to support it as a first step. No, it's not perfect. I already know that. But it's better than Obamacare. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about The public really doesn't want socialist health care. And Bernie Sanders is out there now pushing a wealth tax. Not an income tax, not a property tax. But once you're done paying all these taxes, sales taxes, income taxes, property taxes, and all these other taxes, he wants a wealth tax. And to what end, ladies and gentlemen? We don't exist for the government. The government exists for us. And I keep telling you he's a Marxist, and he certainly is. But I want to go back into my... uh, into my zone here, as we help launch this to try and expose this this grave scandal that is still percolating under the surface. The Obama administration's abuse of power like we've never seen in modern American history, in modern political history, with respect to domestic espionage, domestic surveillance, call it whatever you want. The abuse of the FISA court, the abuse of unmasking, the leaking of information. And the latest you've probably heard all day, but if you went to my social sites earlier, you would have seen it there last evening. Samantha Power. Now, you haven't heard my take on this, so stick with me. Samantha Power, of course, is the wife of Cass Sunstein. Cass Sunstein is a leftist. Cass Sunstein also worked for the Obama administration at one point, one of the senior appointees at the Office of Management and Budget. He's written many books, most of which I disagree with. But Samantha Power was the ambassador from the United States to the United Nations. And Brett Baer and Catherine Heritage broke this story, Fox News. Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the United States, was unmasking at such a rapid pace in the final months of the Obama administration that she averaged more than one request for every working day in 2016 and even sought information in the days leading up to President Trump's inauguration. Multiple sources close to the matter told Fox News. So 
We now have, as a matter of fact, Susan Rice unmasking, despite her phony argument. And now we have Samantha Power, who is unmasking like a crazy person. Like a crazy person. In the closing final months of the Obama administration. Two sources who were not authorized to speak on the record said the request to identify Americans whose names surfaced in foreign intelligence reporting, known as unmasking, exceeded 260 last year in 2016. One source indicated this occurred in the final days of the Obama White House. The details emerged ahead of an expected appearance by power next month on Capitol Hill. She's one of several Obama administration officials facing congressional scrutiny for their role in seeking the identities of Trump associates in intelligence reports, but the interest in her actions is particularly high. Well, not by the rest of the media. Our CNN... MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, the Washington Compost, the New York Slimes, any of them really interested? Nah, not really. We may force them to be interested at some point. In a July 27 letter to the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes said the committee had learned that one official whose position had no apparent intelligence-related function made hundreds of unmasking requests during the final year of the Obama administration. The official is widely reported to be power. Now, notice the letter didn't come from the Senate Intelligence Committee, where they're having a hell of a good time with their bipartisanship. Notice the letter didn't come from the Senate Judiciary Committee. No, instead it came from Chairman Nunes, who's been trashed and smeared and slandered for months as have I, because he and I have the guts to stand up to this. Now, during a public congressional hearing earlier this year, Republican Trey Gowdy of South Carolina pressed former CIA Director John Brennan on unmasking without mentioning Power's name. Now, Mr. Producer, I want you to get cut 16 and go. I don't recall in my tenure at CIA any decision on unmasking for someone else coming up to my level. It would have been, uh, that decision would have been made at a uh, lower level within the agency. Are you aware of any requests within the community that were denied? I, I do not, I didn't have visibility into requests that were being made across the government, so uh, I don't, I don't recall one uh, that uh, I was denied. Do you recall any U.S. ambassadors asking that names be unmasked? I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's ringing a vague bell, but I'm not, I could not answer with any confidence. Do you remember what your last day on the job was at the CIA? What was the date? It was noon on January 20th when I gave up my responsibility as director of CIA. On, ad, on either January 19th or up till noon on January the 20th, did you make any unmasking request? I do not believe I did. So you did not make any requests the last day that you were employed? No, I was not in the agency on the last day I was employed. Uh, I definitely know that on the last day I was employed, I definitely did not make such a request. Mm-hmm. So he says he doesn't know earlier of uh, any ambassador making such unmasking requests. He says could have, but I can't answer with any confidence. So who can answer with confidence? You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is getting very, very old, and I'm getting very sick and tired of it. I'm a radio host. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. 
I'm a constitutional scholar. I know I served in the Reagan administration for eight years. I served as chief of staff to an attorney general. I understand history and philosophy, and yes, I understand intelligence, surveillance, law enforcement, and all these things. But I don't have subpoena power. I don't have the power to go to a court and pick somebody's lock and to break into their uh, apartment <coughs> with guns uh, shown, uh, frisking somebody's wife at 6 in the morning, looking for guns and so forth and so on. I don't have the ability to intimidate. I don't have the ability to get that to the bottom of this other than to look at what's in front of us. And you really have to be blind if you don't see the extent to which the prior administration violated our trust, violated our rules, violated the law in using the power of the federal government to wiretap, to conduct other forms of espionage, to abuse the FISA courts, to abuse the warrants that they received, to target people that they disagreed with, including with the IRS, to target people they disagreed with, including with the FBI and the Justice Department. This isn't a joke. This is issue number one. At the domestic level, at least, it's issue number one. And what's most appalling about all this are the media. The media, which, you know, we have a First Amendment right, freedom of speech. Yeah, we got that, freedom of the press. But you're in full cover-up mode. The Obama administration's in full cover-up mode. And I'm starting to think the reason they attacked Trump and attacked his people and they're chasing Manafort down for some financial or tax violations or what have you is part of the cover-up, is part of the shiny object. This is a big deal. I want to remind you folks that it's much broader much broader than Samantha Power unmasking. Much broader than Susan Rice unmasking. I went back and looked. There's a uh, there's an excellent piece at Circa by John Solomon some time ago. And Sarah Carter on May 23rd. Obama Intel Agency secretly conducted illegal searches on Americans for years. I'm quoting. The National Security Agency under former President Barack Obama routinely violated American privacy protections while scouring through overseas intercepts and failed to disclose the extent of the problem until the final days before Donald Trump was elected president last fall, according to one top secret document, excuse me, once top secret documents that chronicle some of the most serious constitutional abuses to date by the U.S. intelligence community. And this document, well, let me go on, more than 5% or one out of every 20 searches seeking upstream Internet data on Americans inside the NSA's so-called Section 702 database, violated the safeguards Obama and his intelligence chiefs vowed to follow in 2011, according to one classified internal report reviewed by Circa. The Obama administration self-disclosed the problems at a closed-door hearing October 26 before the FISA court that set off alarm. Trump was elected less than two weeks later. And you can see that document online now, ladies and gentlemen. The normally supportive court censured administration officials, saying the failure to disclose the extent of the violations earlier amounted to an institutional lack of candor and that the improper searches constituted a very serious Fourth Amendment issue, according to a recently unsealed court document dated April 26, 
2017. And I say you can get that on the Internet. I'm looking at it right now. The admitted violations undercut one of the primary defenses that the intelligence community and Obama officials have used in recent weeks to justify their snooping into incidental NSA intercepts about Americans. Circa has reported there was a threefold increase in NSA data searches about Americans and a rise in the unmasking of U.S. persons' identities in intelligence reports after Obama loosened the private, private, uh, excuse me, privacy rules in 2011. Officials like former National Security Advisor Susan Rice have urged their activities were legal under the so-called minimization rule changes Obama made and that the intelligence agencies were strictly monitored to avoid abuses. But the intelligence court and the NSA's own internal watchdog found that not to be true. <clears throat> Since 2011, NSA's minimization procedures have prohibited a use of U.S. person identifiers to query the results of upstream Internet collections under Section 702, the unsealed court ruling declared. The October 26, 2016 notice informed the court that NSA analysts have been conducting such queries in violation of that prohibition with much greater frequency than had been previously disclosed to the court. And it goes on. FISA court... NSA, FBI using a dossier, uh, in part, information pulled together by the Kremlin, a Democrat donor having financed it, the FBI using it in part, I believe, to get one or two FISA warrants. I am telling you this is big, and we've barely gotten to the surface of this. You have an ambassador to the United Nations who herself caused, according to this Fox report, that's what I'm basing it on, 260 unmaskings, most of which occurred near the end of their administration. Meanwhile, we have a special counsel investigating Trump world. Investigating Trump world because James Comey pushed for it, and one of his best friends is the special counsel. We have James Comey, months before he interviewed Hillary Clinton for three hours, not under oath, without video, deciding that he was going to give her the okay. This is incredible to me. I've been around. You know, I didn't fall off the tuna boat yesterday. Didn't fall off the tuna boat yesterday. Susan Rice admits unmasking. Wow, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. She had no reason to ask for unmasking. That was nonsense. We have leaks to the media about meetings that Jeff Sessions had, harmless meetings with the Russians. Leaks on Mike Flynn, who's now again a target of a criminal investigation. This is appalling. And now we know that, in fact, Paul Manafort was wiretapped. A word that was mocked just a few months ago by CNN and ABC and MSNBC and all the rest of it. Nobody wiretaps anymore. What are you saying? Then they claim, well, it's not exactly true what Trump said. That Obama was tapping his wires. You know what? It's close enough. Obama was tapping somebody's wires. The buck stops with Obama. You know, everybody... Praises Harry Truman for that line. The buck stops here with the President of the United States. 
I'll be right back. Mark Levin. This document put out by the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court on April 26, 2017, you can Google what I just read and it'll come out, was originally top secret. Um... But you ought to read it. It's long, and it lays out the case point by point by point, what this administration did, what the NSA did in abusing its authority under the uh, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And this apparently was the mindset of this administration. That's why James Comey was taking notes, keeping book on the President of the United States when he was meeting with him. He had no reason to keep notes on the President of the United States. But he kept book on the President of the United States because this had become the mentality to keep secret information on people. And apparently he selectively leaked certain aspects of it. Certain aspects of it contained classified information. He was a real player, this uh, this James Comey. And so is Mr. Mueller, the CIA director before Comey and one of Comey's buddies. This whole crap situation needs to be broken up. It really does. It's incestuous and it's unacceptable. I'll be right back. This is the nation's town hall meeting and you can join in at 877-381-3811. Member Valerie Plame. Well, we're going to get to get to her soon enough. Unbelievable. Over at the Federalist website, Ben Dominich, he now has some questions. He has 13 questions about the wiretapping of Paul Manafort. When? Number one, when exactly was Paul Manafort wiretapped by the government? Exactly when? Number two, did the wiretap cease when Manafort became Trump's campaign chairman in March 2016? And did it resume after he ceased to have this role in August 2016, or did it overlap? Three, was the FBI wiretap steady in the months before March 2016, before he had any official affiliation with the Trump campaign, during which time he was reportedly talking regularly with Trump and living in Trump Tower? Four, Given that Manafort lived there in Trump Tower, did the wiretap cover Trump, uh, Trump Tower, yes or no? Five, when was the wiretap renewed? On whose orders was the request made and what new justification was involved? Great questions. Number six, if the evidence contained within the conversations the government wiretap were indeed not conclusive about acts of collusion, as two sources tell CNN, why was the wiretap renewed, presuming that was the case, after Manafort left the campaign? Was it investigating the same activity or new ones? Number seven. This was a 2014-based investigation, given Manafort's activity on behalf of Vladimir Putin-friendly political party in Ukraine at the time. Back in April, the Podesta group advised their FARA reporting, excuse me, revised their FARA reporting, on their involvement in that Ukraine election, when their activity was directed by Manafort. 
Was the Podesta group or any of its officials included in any wiretaps in 2016? That would be interesting since Podesta, the brother, uh, was, of course, one of Hillary Clinton's top campaign advisors. Number eight. The piece, the CNN piece, says that the wiretapping, which related to Manafort's work in Ukraine, was discontinued at some point last year for lack of evidence. But that the FBI then restarted the surveillance after obtaining a new FISA warrant that extended at least into early this year. What evidence precipitated the request for that new warrant? Presumably not new work for Ukraine, so why the change? All these questions are excellent because they get to the issue of politicization. The timing, the purpose, the overlap, whether Trump was heard and so forth. Number nine, was there anything that changed in the intervening time preceding the restart of the investigation other than the role Manafort played with the Trump campaign in 2016? In several ways, he's trying to get at the question of why did they get another FISA warrant? Number 10, was any of the justification contained within the application for the wiretaps renewal? Dependent on the Steele memo, that's that dossier, whose many claims cannot be substantiated or have been significantly debunked. We know, according to prior CNN reporting, it was used for approval from a FISA court regarding Carter Page. CNN reports, quote, the conversations between Manafort and Trump continued after the president took office, long after the FBI investigation and Manafort was publicly known, the sources told CNN. They were on until lawyers for the president and Manafort insisted that they stop, according to the sources. It's unclear whether Trump himself was picked up on the surveillance. Number 11, how could it be possible that that Republican nominee, president-elect, or President Trump was not picked up on the surveillance of Manafort if the two talk by phone as frequently as been reported? See, ladies and gentlemen, some of us believe all this renewed interest in the FISA court, surveillance, wiretapping, was really aimed at the president, his inner circle, the campaign, and later the transition. That's what we're getting at here. Certainly what I'm getting at. Number 12. Why did Attorney General Jeff Sessions say there was no basis for Trump's tweet when it seems clear that, in fact, someone as senior as Manafort, working and operating within Trump Tower, was indeed wiretapped? It is possible he was being literal and specific. But if this wiretap did indeed pick up conversations with Trump, how did Sessions not know about it? Was his recusal part of that? Did it end prior to his confirmation? And finally, number 13. Why are we just learning about this now? Who's the person leaking information illegally, as Manafort's statement notes, about a FISA court-based investigation? Who benefits from this report? And what is his or her motivation in letting it be known? Well, Mr. Dominic, we have been talking about it here for over six months based on prior media reports. You may want to check that out, but it's still a good point, even at this late date. But it's a very good piece by Ben Dominic, as far as I'm concerned, raising good questions about the Manafort wiretapping. There's a lot of questions out there, ladies and gentlemen, and damn few answers, isn't there? Because they're protecting Obama and his administration. Clapper's statements on Meet the Press were in fact, were in fact a denial. I see people out there splitting hairs, but they were, it was in fact, in my view, a denial. He said he would know. Brennan, 
was dissembling in my view. Comey early on was playing a, uh, a lawyer's hand when he was testifying about what he and the Justice Department had determined that Trump's specific comments were not true. But all three of them did everything they could to deceive, in my view, my opinion, the, uh, the congressional interrogators. I'm going to continue on this. I'm going to continue on. Some of you might say, all right, we're bored already. Don't be bored already. This is about your country, your liberty, and whether or not the federal government has the right to surveil you. And I can assure you, if the president wasn't Barack Obama, was any Republican president and virtually any Democrat president, uh, the media would be all over this. The media would be all over this. But they so love Obama and his agenda, and they so hate Trump and his agenda, this is where we are. And we'll go to the calls, but I want to hit a few other issues first. Wrap up here. This is uh, an article, uh, and it's been repeated elsewhere, because it's really quite remarkable about ex-CIA person, she was never an agent, Valerie Plain. Remember her? Oh, yeah. She was the heroine of the left, of the media. She was on TV all the time. She claimed to have been victimized. Oh, yes, the, uh, the, the Bush administration and Dick Cheney and Scooter Libby and all the rest, when in fact the leak about her identity came from Richard Armitage, who was the Deputy Secretary of State under Colin Powell, who we never hear from anymore. You notice that? Valerie Plame Wilson. This is the uh, Times of Israel, but you can find it almost anywhere. A former CIA agent and author. I don't believe she was an agent, in fact. Came under fire on Thursday after she tweeted a link to a piece titled, listen to this, America's Jews are driving America's wars. She sounds like David Duke, doesn't she? The darling of the left wing, the darling of the left wing media, the Praetorian Guard media, sounds like David Duke. America's Jews are driving America's wars. That's a link she put up on her site. She tweeted, in fact, to that piece, to that article. Valerie Plame, whose identity as a CIA operative was leaked by an official in former President George W. Bush's administration in 2003. Why don't they say who it was? Richard Armitage. Left the agency in 2005. Now, this article she linked to in the last 24 hours, she initially defended the article entitled America's Jews are Driving America's Wars, written by Philip, Philip Giraldi, but she later backtracked, begging for forgiveness. But she put up a fight first. The article included statements saying that anyone who touches on this subject of the U.S.-Israeli relationship and American Jews runs the risk of a quick trip to obscurity because Jewish groups and deep-pocket individual donors not only control the politicians, they own and run the media and entertainment industries. This is a quintessential Jew-hating comment. Quintessential Jew-hating comment. Focused on a potential impending war with Iran, the article asserts that what makes the war engine run is provided by American Jews, who've taken upon themselves the onerous task of starting a war with a country that does not conceivably threaten the United States. Oh, that's right. Death to America, ICBMs, nuclear warheads, that's right. It, the, the Jews made it up. Giraldi went on to assert the issue that nearly all the Iran haters are Jews has somehow fallen out of sight. 
as if it does not matter, but it should matter. Oh, you mean like Trump? Is Trump Jewish? Just curious. Is Pence Jewish? Just curious. Giraldi cites a list of Jews as, quote, conduits for the false information that led to a war with Iraq that has spread and effectively destroyed much of the Middle East. His column concludes, we don't need a war with Iran because Israel wants one and some rich and powerful American Jews are happy to deliver. Seriously, we don't need it. So this is the article she linked to. The column appeared Tuesday on the website The Unz Review, which is funded by Ron Unz, U-N-Z, a one-time candidate for governor of California who's Jewish, according to the Washington Examiner. The Anti-Defamation League noted in 2014... Uns publicizes ideas promoted by anti right, whatever. Wilson initially explained why she shared the column in a series of tweets. She, this is very important, ladies and gentlemen, because I know the media are very concerned about white supremacists and Klansmen and neo-Nazis. And I must say that Valerie Plame Wilson's comments fit right in that genre, don't, don't they? Fit right in that genre. She wrote, first of all, calm down. Retweets don't imply endorsement. Yes, the piece is very provocative, but thoughtful, she says. Many many neocon hawks are Jewish. Just FYI, I'm of Jewish descent. Oh, sure you are. I'm not in favor of war with Iran or getting out of the Iran nuclear treaty. There are simply too many who are ready to go to war. Haven't we had enough for a while? Read the entire article and try just for a moment to put aside your biases and think clearly. Really? That the Jews are responsible for war? Think clearly, ladies and gentlemen. But later, Valerie Plame backed down and said she missed the gross undercurrents of the story. Okay, folks, look, I messed up. I skimmed this piece, zeroed in on the neocon criticism, and shared it without seeing and considering the rest of it. She just skimmed the piece. The title's a dead giveaway, you nitwit. You you disgrace. American Jews are driving America's wars. She, she just skimmed through that. Look at this. Look at this. Let's link to this or retweet it. In the past, Ms. Plame linked to a story by Giraldi published on the same website that reported Israelis were, quote, dancing after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Washington Examiner noted. She also complimented Giraldi for another piece titled, Why I Still Dislike Israel. Last month, she drew headlines when she started an Internet funding campaign intended to raise enough money to buy shares in Twitter so that she could delete U.S. President Donald Trump's Twitter account. She's just an all-around great gal, isn't she? Now, let's see what the lib media do with her. Now, I know she wasn't in Charlottesville, Virginia on that, uh, on that sad day, but you don't have to have been there on that sad day. I just want to know. I just want to know if the lib media will suggest that this is the kind of neo-Nazi, Klansman, white supremacist commentary that they condemn. They condemn it, rightly, if it's David Duke. But how about Valerie Plame Wilson? We'll be waiting. I'll be right back. in. Lots going on here. Oh, darn. The uh, call screen fell out. All right, Mr. Producer, give me a good call, even if they disagree. 
Andy in Maryland, the great WMAO. Go. Hi, Mr. Levin. How are you, sir? Okay. Again, what we have here is the media not reporting on something. One of the biggest scandals, I think, um, this is Richard Dixon on steroids. This is uh, the sitting president basically monitoring illegally a sitting president or an incoming president and his associates. And the scary thing is, they, why they do it is because they know they can get away with it. They know the media is never going to uh, probe them or find out what's going on or anything. So they just think that they have the, the right to do it. And the media will not. So now what has to happen is, is every Republican has to go in front of a mic and bring this shit, bring this up. What's going on? Because now, what has to happen is we got to clear out these: uh, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. Keep Nunes there as the House Intelligence Chairman. He's quite good. Uh, these Republican bodies need to start issuing subpoenas, backing them up. If the FBI and the NSA and the rest of the uh, entities involved in these activities will not cough up the information, uh, then Congress needs to go to court. And they need to go all the way to the Supreme Court. They have to enforce their subpoenas. You know, Congress is mentioned in the Constitution under Article I. Uh, the FBI is not mentioned in the Constitution. The Department of Justice isn't mentioned in the Constitution. And Congress has an obligation to uh, authorize the existence of these departments and agencies and appropriate the funding. And as such, they have an oversight responsibility. I'm not saying in lieu of the executive branch. I'm saying they have an independent oversight responsibility and uh, them running on TV, beating their chests, sending letters. That's not what you do. If they're serious about it, they will issue subpoenas for exactly what they want. And if the Democrats are blocking them, then they need to go over the heads of the Democrats. It's that simple. Will they do that, though? Don't they care? Well, look, I, look, look, you're asking me, will they do that? You think these guys, uh, they, they, you think they strategize with me? No. I don't know what the hell they'll do. You asked me what should be done. I'm telling you what should be done. I'm sick of the press releases. I'm sick of the press conferences. I'm sick of them showing up on cable TV telling us, you know, how terrible things are. They have power. They have power, and they need to exercise it. And they also also to rein in uh, Mr. Mueller. But they won't rein in Mr. Mueller. In fact, uh, we had a guy like Corker and others saying that they were going to pass a statute to protect Mr. Mueller. Protect Mr. Mueller from what? Mr. Mueller is completely out of control, and so is his merry band of left-wing Democrats dressed up as uh, assistant prosecutors. Thank you for your call, my friend. All right. Got two more big hours left. You won't want to miss them. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. This is our two. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Move on to a few other issues. I definitely want to take on this China and North Korea issue, which we'll do likely later in this hour in the 
third hour, but first I want to talk about your health care. Your health care is up for debate again. Now, I kind of resent the fact that you and I have no say, really no say, in how the nation's health care system, quote unquote, is going to be structured. Depends on which party's in power. It depends on whether there's more conservatives or more liberals. And I resent it because the truth is, it's none of the government's business. Now, we've reached a point where we say we want people who can't take care of themselves, you know, we want them to have some access to health care, fine. But what does that have to do with you and me? They destroyed our health care system, right? They've destroyed our health insurance. They've driven up the cost. They've driven down the access. You've got doctors leaving the profession in droves, and that's going to be a huge problem down the road. You have hospitals closing, particularly in border states and other areas with heavy uh, immigration populations, particularly illegal immigration populations. The only thing that hasn't been touched in the backdoor nationalization of health care are the trial lawyers. The slip and fall lawyers, you know, they still... Uh, making a fortune. You go to West Palm Beach, you can go to Beverly Hills, you can go to Manhattan, you can see how they live. Like kings and queens. And so what's happening now is uh, Mr. Sanders, or Bernie the Red as I call him, and uh, now I think it's up to 16 or 18 members of the uh, Democrat Party in the Senate are supporting Socialist health care. They want to call it single payer, but that's what it means, socialist. The government pays for everything. So that means those of you with private health care, and there's 180 million of you with private health care, whether it's employer-sanctioned or otherwise, your private health care would be taken away from you, be eliminated. Eliminated. And you'd have to rely on whatever the government decides to give you or not give you. Period. And there'd be no way out. You'd be in a straitjacket. You, your spouse, if you have one, your kids, you'd all be stuck. So when they say all these people are going to drop out of health care, they're going to eliminate 180 peop- a million people with their, uh, uh, I mean, the health care coverage for 180 million people, private health care. It'll be gone. And all you folks who work for insurance companies, you'll be out of jobs. And there's many, many people who do. So it'd be, it would be wrenching, absolutely wrenching. Even though it sounds compassionate, there's nothing compassionate about it. It's destructive in every respect. And when the American people are told the truth about socialist health care, they reject it. Over at Right Scoop, they have the polls. It's all broken down. And when people learn what's actually involved in it, they say, no, we don't want it. They don't want it, but it doesn't matter. The people said they didn't want Obamacare, right? But Bernie the Red isn't done, ladies and gentlemen. Bernie the Red now is talking about popular, uh, he wants to uh, promote a wealth tax. So it's not enough that you pay, most of us, a state income tax, a state sales tax, a state property tax. It's not enough that you pay a federal income tax and all kinds of taxes that I can't remember. Once you're done paying all these taxes, Bernie the Red says you ought to pay a wealth tax. And Bernie the Red will decide who's wealthy and who's not. And let me tell you a little secret. As the federal government runs out of money, 
all of you will be considered wealthy. They sold Obamacare on, well, the rich shouldn't be the only ones who get health care and so forth and so on, right? But it affects you directly. Over at BuzzFeed, which is a left-wing site, pretty much, they talk about this. In 1997, in his book, Outsider in the House, Sanders declared it's high time to establish a tax on wealth, similar to those that exist in most European countries. Nine years later, during his first race for the U.S. Senate, his opponent quoted the passage online, printed it on brochures, and pushed it into statements. Sanders' European-style wealth tax on everything they own every year, every tractor, cow, and acre, In response, the Sanders campaign argued that he had never formally proposed a wealth tax, just floated the idea. During the Democratic primary in 2016, the Sanders campaign did consider an official wealth tax, two former officials said, but the idea died over concerns about the reality of implementation and that the tax plan would be perceived as far out of the mainstream. Now nearly a year after the election, the 76-year-old Vermont senator is one of the most popular politicians in America which is stunning. Ahead of his Medicare for All announcement last week, a total of 16 senators backed the bill, putting about one-third of the chamber's Democrats behind single-payer health care, socialist health care, an almost real-time shift in the party's baseline. But few American lawmakers have embraced a wealth tax, an annual federal tax on the net assets of the very rich. Now that change, that title of very rich, that characterization is changeable. Though economists and academics, both liberal and conservative, made the case for one before. Others have argued that any wealth tax tax would be dauntingly complicated and potentially unconstitutional. So, again, the government is not in the business of living within the constitutional confines uh, that have been established. The government's in the business of redistributing wealth. The government's in the business of building infrastructure, even for localities and states. The government's in the business of entitlements for all taking care of families, doing family leave, and the elderly for this, and the sick for that, and the short for this, and the fat for that, and on and on and on and on and on. So we need a wealth tax. You know what a wealth tax is, ladies and gentlemen? It's confiscation, pure and simple, of your private property. That's what it is. They can talk about the very rich all they want. Those terms are fungible. They change all the time. It's like now the very rich are are two people, maybe a firefighter and a teacher. Maybe they earn $250,000 a year, gross. They're among the very rich. That's how it works. Oh, the very rich. I'm sick and tired of this Marxist mentality. It is a poison to a free society or a quasi-free society like ours. The bourgeoisie and the proletariat, you know, the bourgeoisie, the landowners, the managers and all the rest. The proletariat, the hardworking people, and it's the proletariat, right? The hardworking people. They're the ones who are screwed in Venezuela, in Cuba, in North Korea, and everywhere else. Communism is nothing more than a different form of a genocidal dictatorship. That's all. But it's dressed up as being for the people, for the general welfare and so forth. That's why I resist efforts even by Trump himself, other Republicans, certain websites going on and on about the rich versus the poor, the elite versus the non-elite. No. We need to talk about Americans and individualism and freedom and opportunity and wealth creation. 
You managed to earn a lot of wealth? Great. As long as you've done legally and morally, why do I care? It's not like there's a limited pie. And for the most part, people who earn a lot of wealth are law-abiding American citizens. For the most part, they're providing a product and a service that Americans want. Otherwise, they wouldn't be wealthy. Poor people don't produce products and services. You know, people do different things in a society. But it just amazes me how this has taken hold in our own country. In our own country. How we resent people who, who achieve more than we achieve. We shouldn't resent them. Anyway, this single-payer government-run health care, this is what I'm concerned about. If we don't get rid of this Obamacare, we're going to wind up with this single-payer government-run health care. This is what I'm concerned about. No, the proposal that Graham and Cassidy and others are making isn't perfect. But to me, it's a first step because it changes the dynamics. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Rick Santor. Rick Santorum, where have you been? Did you leave the country or something? Hello, Mark. Where have you been? Um, the work is uh, behind the scenes trying to get some health care reform passed. All right. Senator Rick Santorum, an old friend of mine I never hear from anymore. Now, let me ask you a question, Rick Santorum. You are one of the uh, the minds behind this proposal that's called Graham Cassidy, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give my audience, this stuff gets complicated and there's a lot of background static, the basics of what's being proposed here? This is really trying to do a redo of what we did 21 years ago with welfare reform, which is take a federal program that wasn't working very well, uh, that was just like Obamacare, uh, spending a lot of money and not getting very good results, and turning it over to the uh, to the governors and to the states uh, where, where federalism – I mean, you talk about federalism all the time on this program. Let, this is this is an issue that should not be being dealt with at the federal level. Uh, you turn it back to the states, give them the flexibility and some resources, which is what we did in welfare reform. And I just – the results of welfare reform, which, by the way, uh, 23 Democratic senators voted for, including Joe Biden and John Kerry and Ron Wyden, who's the ranking member of the – of the Senate uh, uh, Finance Committee, they, they voted for this, and they gave governors the opportunity to design a system that met the needs of the people in their particular state. And what happened? The welfare rolls got cut in half. Uh, the, the the block grant for for the, that we put forward for welfare reform in 1996 has never been increased. Never been increased in 21 years. Why? Because governors became efficient. Stephen Moore has an article up to, talking about what what happened in Rhode Island when they were given the flexibility to redesign their Medicaid program. You give governors and legislators a budget, a fixed amount of money, unlike these open-ended entitlements that, like Medicaid and, and, uh, and Obamacare. You give them a fixed amount of money. You give them the flexibility to design a program, working with their local insurers and hospitals and doctors, and you, you create a local solution that, that fits the needs of Alaska, that's different than Florida, that's different than Rhode Island. And that's how you're going to get innovation. That's how you're going to drive down costs. And that's what we do in this bill. And it's, it's, it's that simple. Aren't there other aspects to the bill, or am I wrong? 
Really, I mean, there, there's a we we there's a Medicaid block grant, so we block the there's a block grant of Medicaid. It's called a per capita cap, but it's similar to a block grant. So we again put take Medicaid from this open-ended entitlement where states, the more they spend, the more they get. That's a bad incentive. Uh, the biggest uh, winners under Medicaid right now are California, New York, and Massachusetts. They spend an enormous amount of money under both Medicaid, traditional Medicaid, and, and Obamacare, which is an expansion of Medicaid. They get enormous amounts of money vis-a-vis the rest of the country. Why? Because they spend a lot of money. And so what we're saying is stop encouraging states to spend and waste money. Put them on a budget. Put Medicaid on a cap. Put, uh, give them the flexibility to redesign the program without all these bureaucratic rules and regulations out of Washington. Put certain, just like we do with welfare, we put certain protections in. The idea that, for example, they're saying, oh, you, you can't, uh, you're going to be able to drop off people who have pre-existing condition. That's not true. But what we say is, States can come up with different ways to address this pre-existing condition issue, but as opposed to the way Obama mandated everybody to do it. So there's ways of, of handling pre-existing conditions, many ways that states choose to do. Now we say you have to cover pre-existing people with pre-existing condition, but states have flexibility as long as they provide and guarantee to provide affordable and accessible care for people with pre-existing condition. Those are the kinds of flexibility that drive down costs and create innovation. You know, Rick Santorum, you may remember the Reagan administration. Yep. And uh, I remember over the Department of Education, when we couldn't get rid of it, we took a Plan B. Yep. And the Plan B was, when it came to uh, to primary and secondary education, to block grant as much of those funds to the states as possible uh, without the federal government meddling in, in state affairs. Do you remember that? I do. And, you know, that's a, it, it really is a lesson. Uh, you know, we worked with uh, member Bob Carlson from the Reagan administration. We worked with I him sure on do. welfare reform way back in the 90s. And and it's the same lesson. It's it's a repeat of what Reagan taught us, which is, you know what, unfortunately, when you create a new entitlement, it's hard to get it's hard to get rid of that entitlement. Once you give people an entitlement, that's the reason you and I and so many people fought against Obamacare. Uh, but what we did is uh, under this bill, uh, taxes are cut by over a quarter of a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. That's not bad. Spending is cut by $400 billion. That's not bad. We get the money and power out of Washington and into the 50 states. That's not bad. I mean, what is it for Republicans not to like about this? Is it Could we do more? There was one person who voted against welfare reform in 1996, and he was a dear friend of mine, a conservative from North Carolina named Locke Faircloth, because we didn't cut enough taxes and we didn't cut enough spending. In the end, we've cut literally hundreds of billions of dollars in spending, and we've got lower poverty rates and, and, and better performance out of uh, and people working uh, who used to be, uh, you know, just collecting a check. So the answer is you've got to sometimes, you know, take what you've got in a bad situation and make it and, and do the best with it you can. And what about buying over state lines? Is that relevant in this debate? Unfortunately, because of the way the Senate is limited as to how what they can include in the bill, that's something. The only thing they can include in this bill are it's things money. that have a financial consequence on the federal government. That's what this reconciliation process is. And unfortunately, that doesn't have a... But they can uh, go back and do things like that. Oh, yeah. Right? No, look, this is the other thing. I mean, this is strike one. I mean, we. T- you mentioned Bernie Care and the, the, uh, the optics of... The bill that Graham Cassie being introduced the same day Bernie Care was induced is really interesting. I don't know if you've mentioned this. You probably is because you, you get everything right. But uh, the, the I have optics, to have you on more often. Go ahead. <laughs> the optics 
of Bernie Sanders and 14 or 15 Democratic senators getting up and basically saying Obamacare is a failure. We need to go to single payer. And, and Senator, up, and 180 million of you, your private health care is gone. That's right. It's gone. 180 million people dropped from their private health care. And what, but what they're saying is that Obamacare is a failure. Why would you introduce a new health care bill if the one you yeah. voted for worked? So they're, they, they, are, they are implicitly saying Obamacare is a failure. They're saying the answer is get rid of private health care, throw everything to Washington, and have Washington decide what – and our solution is get everything out of Washington, get it back into the states and the local communities, let doctors and hospitals, insurance companies, and patients in the states all across this country design a system that's best for them where you have real input from by your state legislator and your governor and people in your local community. That is the fundamental divide. That you know that from the basic. That's a difference between Republicans and Democrats, mm-hmm. and that's the binary choice. I know there's some people who say, "Oh, I'd like a better bill, or I'd like something." But that's that's not the choice. We either pass Graham Cassidy, or we're ended up we're going to go to Bernie Care because Obamacare is collapsing, and that's the that's where every Democrat is going to go, and and that's going to be where we end up on this train. That's my great fear. You got to yeah. look at this a little bit strategically. And we're not surrendering our principles. As you said, you can go back for additional bites. Go back, Rand Paul. Go back. Make your case. Fight, well, fight, next, fight. Yeah, the next bill that if we successfully pass, well, uh, health care, guess what the next bill is that will have a lot more a lot more oomph because we've actually succeeded in something, and that's tax reform. You don't like the taxes in the health care bill? Well, take them out. you got a chance to do that in tax reform on the next bill that's coming up. There's always another bite of the apple. The one thing that Democrats have always done over the years, Mark, that Republicans have just not gotten it through their heads. Take what you can get. All right, Rick, can you, can you hold over? I want to talk to you about North Korea. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Absolutely. That's Rick Santorum. I'm Mark Levin. We'll be right back. doesn't just read the news, he makes the news. Call the Mark Levin Show now at 877-381-3811. If your car broke down today, could you afford the repairs? Now, before you answer, consider how complicated this is. Replacing your engine can cost thousands. A simple repair to a sensor can cost over $1,000. I've got some advice for you. Get extended vehicle service protection from CarShield, like I did on our Camaro. And you won't have to worry about it. What's CarShield? It's affordable extended vehicle service protection that can save you thousands for a covered repair. And they cover practically everything. You can have your favorite mechanic or dealership do the work with CarShield, getting the mechanic paid directly. And you don't have to worry about being reimbursed. Get covered by CarShield today, and you'll get the VIP treatment from CarShield's administrators, 24-7 roadside assistance, and a rental car while yours is in the shop. Here's what you do. It's simple. Call 800-CAR-6100. Mention code LEVIN. That's 800-CAR-6100. Or go to carshield.com, carshield.com, and use code LEVIN. That's L-E-V-I-N. Why? Because you'll save 10%, and that's a lot. That's carshield.com, code LEVIN. A deductible may apply. Now, we're back with uh, Rick Santorum, former senator from Pennsylvania. I want to talk quickly about North Korea and Iran. Uh, you saw what the president did today, which I thought was very important. I think uh, uh, China is very vulnerable with its currency, and China is very vulnerable with its banking system because a lot of it is basically uh, supported by 
by constant deficit spending. China has a massive debt. As a percentage of their economy, it's even bigger than ours. And so they have some issues there. And I've been saying, Rick Santorum, that we ought to treat China the way Reagan did the Soviet Union, and that is bring economic pressure on China as well as military pressure. And I don't mean a shooting war, but help South Korea get their 100 uh, nuclear warheads back, which we removed during the Bush uh, Bush 41 administration because we were going to have a denuclearized uh, peninsula and so forth. So there are things that we can do. But I thought what the president did today and what he's trying to do is is more effective than past presidents. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, there's really no question about it. I mean, we, what we've seen over Democratic and Republican administrations over the past 20 years uh, is North Korea continuing its, its march toward missile and nuclear capability to deliver a nuclear weapon and a lot of talk from both Democrats and Republicans and very little action. And what you see from Donald Trump, I mean, think about the success that this president has had at the United Nations in getting uh, the world to, to sanction North Korea. And uh, I think we've done about as much as we can do from the world, but we haven't even begun uh, to get what the Chinese can do to really throttle this, uh, this, rogue, this rogue dictator. And, and you're absolutely right. Short of some action against North Korea directly, whether overt or covert, uh, the most effective way of dealing with North Korea is through China. And, uh, you know, people have said that, he's, you know, that Trump is bombastic and unpredictable and the like. I, you know, I think that works for this for this for this uh, this situation. I think you know having Nikki Haley and and uh, and and Tillerson and Mattis be sort of the level-headed guys, and and Trump saying, you know what, uh, here's here's the line I'm drawing, and uh, if you don't if you don't start uh, you know coming in our direction, uh, you know things are going to start happening, and what you see is that that's being listened to. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to Iran. I think you'd just pull out of this deal, and I think Iran will be hurting mighty, mightily, despite what they say. Even if the Europeans try and uh, support Iran, and then if we want to negotiate a deal, we negotiate a real deal, and we run it through the Senate. What do you think? Couldn't agree more. Uh, the idea that the Europeans are going to are going to buck us on this. If we say that you do business with Iranian businesses like we did before, the Iranian government, we're not going to do business with you. I guarantee you, European businesses would rather do business with us than business with the Iranians. So this idea that, oh, you know, these sanctions, we can't go it alone. We can go it alone because we have an economic, we have an economic power that, uh, that is much more important than, uh, than Iran. So, uh, I, I know people are shaking in their boots that somehow or another we're going to back out of this agreement. Iran is on its way to a nuclear weapon legitimately under this agreement. We need to, we need to delegitimize their nuclear program by canceling this agreement. We need to get the world community showing some leadership, uh, and, uh, and, and saying that, you know, you do business with Iran, you don't do business with us. That'll shut that down very, very quickly and put them in the state they were before the negotiations that Barack Obama put them in. They were at, the, they were on their knees. Exactly. Uh, politically and economically and we propped them back up. We need to bring them back down. You know, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of reliable sources. We have a problem at the State Department. We have a problem with Rex Tillerson on this Iran deal. We have a problem with Rex Tillerson, uh, the way the president talks and wants to act, respecting China to put pressure on uh, North Korea. We're never going to get the entrenched bureaucrats out of there when we have a guy like Tillerson, are we? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it really is troubling to me. Uh 
I, I'm not liking what I'm seeing out of the State Department. I've never liked, even in the Bush administration, I didn't like what I see out of the State Department. And, yep. you, know, uh, you know, if you go back to Republican and Democratic administrations, in my opinion, we've had very much establishment people go in there and, and allow the bureaucracy to run the, run the operation. And that, that doesn't work. It hasn't worked for our country. It hasn't made us safer. And uh, I would like to see someone go in there and shake things up. But that's not going to happen. Well, it's the, not, pres- the not, president not will the shake things situation. up. I would yeah. agree with you. Yeah. So, so we ought to get out of the Iran deal, and if we want to renegotiate it, we renegotiate it. But I just want the audience to understand, Iran, as soon as this deal is over, and it's over in 10 years, can build all the nuclear arms that it wants. As a matter of fact, this deal doesn't cover ICBMs either. Well, look, there's most of the sites that we're most concerned about, we're not even inspecting or, or uh, this is... This they won't is, allow us. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these deals where you just scratch your head. Iran has broken every single deal they've ever been in. Now, we don't, most of the time we didn't know it at the time, but we found out later they did. I guarantee you we're going to find out that Iran has violated every every major tenet of this agreement. They're pursuing a nuclear weapon. They 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 have pulled the wool over, you know, someone who wanted to have the wool pulled over his eyes, and that was Barack Obama, and Donald Trump shouldn't play that game. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, uh, the, the couple problem of weeks the away. Yeah, the problem with uh, uh, on, on Iran? Yes. Look, the problem with, with Donald Trump right now is he's got he's been left such a mess in the world by President Obama that he's got a lot of hot spots he's got to deal with. And, you know, the the question is, which you can't deal with them all at once. And so which one do you set your priorities on? Well, what's he going to what's he going to do with this Iran deal? I hope he I hope. I, I, I mean, I mean, Rick. Crazy. After yeah. after he after he gave that speech at the UN and said it's the worst deal ever, and so I hope. And so. He, well, he's done that a few times, and then, and then held up the deals. I'm hopeful that this is a sign that he's going to actually pull the plug on this and get the European community to to face the music that they they have to pull out to. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Rick Santorum. Ask him a lot of questions because Rick Santorum really was among the first. I guess we would call you a nationalist populist. As you know, I'm a constitutional conservative. Yes, but I, I want to ask you this. DACA. The president has done a complete reversal on DACA. What do you think about that? I'm very disappointed on that. And Look, it, the, this is a difficult issue, but... You know, I'm a constitutionalist too, Mark. And the and the bottom line is, this is this law is not uh, it, this is not constitutional. What the President Obama did, and DACA is not a constitutional action. He did the right thing. Now, talking about uh, you know encouraging this this is the problem when you when you give amnesty to a group of people who came in this country illegally, you're going to send a signal for more people to come and create more problems at the border, more problems generally. So we, there, there's, there's a solution, and that's enforcing the law and doing it in a humane way. But uh, I, I just don't see that creating more, uh, more pressure at the border is a good thing for this country. And you know, Rick, if you're not going to secure the border... This will go on over and over and over and it over again, like it on. has. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, what do you mean? It will. It has. I mean, this is why we're in the problem we had. I mean, you know, going back to Ronald Reagan, love the man. I mean, I, I think he would probably admit that the 86 deal was not particularly a great deal. You know, we were going to solve the problem with, with all this amnesty, and all we did was create a bigger problem because once people realize that if you hang here long enough, you'll get to be able to stay here and get your, and get your citizenship, there's no reason not to come. Well, there's even a bigger lesson from that because he insisted that Congress fund a much more aggressive and border security, and they wouldn't fund it. And look, 
was it 2006 or 2007? Uh, the Republicans and Bush got a bill passed to 700 miles of physical fencing and walls and so forth and so on. I think they paid for some minuscule amount of it. The Democrats do this all the time, and the progressive Republicans do this all the time. To me, we're not talking DACA. We're not talking schmaka. Let's get that border secured. Then you want to talk to me, you'll talk to me. Uh, you know, we've we've said from the very beginning, you, you have a secure border, then you have options available to you how to treat people who are in this country illegally. But as long as the border is not secure, then you cannot create an opportunity, uh, an incentive for more people to come here because they will. I've got one more question for you, and it's this. What about the judges? president's doing a good job on the judges, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And hopefully we'll have another Supreme Court justice uh, pick here in the next year. I think we will, don't you? I do. And and I think it would be, it could be a, a real, tra- it, it, a, as much as Gorsuch was the defining accomplishment so far as Trump, this this will be even bigger. And I've talked to the president about this, and you know, he's fully prepared to, um, you know, to fill fill the shoes of uh, whoever the next vacancy is with with another Scalia, Gorsuch, you know, Alito-type conservative. And uh, that that will restore, at least for the time being, uh, constitutional government again, which is this country's in sore need of. Let me circle back. We have a minute or two. These ideas in this so-called Graham-Cassidy bill, were you there at the beginning? Were you working on this? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, the story, it's a true story. I mean, I, I was working with uh, Mark Meadows and Raul Labrador at the Freedom Caucus on this idea way back when the bill was being debated in the House. And... Um, I ran into Lindsey Lindsey Graham at a barber shop, and I thought, you know, let me bounce it off Lindsey because I always thought this was a, uh, an agreement. This kind of proposal would attract moderate as well as conservative support, and I uh, bounced it off Lindsey, and he loved it. So Mark Meadows, Rick Santorum, and and Lindsey Graham started working on this thing about six months ago, and no one really paid much attention to us until about a week and a half ago, and all of a sudden, uh, here we are. What do you think? Think it'll pass? I do. I think it's more likely than not right now to pass. And uh, obviously a lot of things can change. Uh, you know, the CBO score, that you know, Congressional Budget Office score that's going to come out. Yeah, next you, know, week. you know what they always do? The CBO does the same thing every time. They talk about yeah. the millions of people who are going to drop out, and they right. don't explain. No, it's millions of people who are going to voluntarily get the hell out from under Obamacare. Well, that's they, what they, they say. Don't, yeah. yeah, people don't realize that, that, right, the majority of people they say are not going to be covered are people who – they say are being covered only because they're forced to or they pay a fine so they don't want to pay the fine so they buy insurance that's not that's not uh that's, that's not freedom in america you shouldn't have to you know pay a fine if you don't do something as as basic as decide do you want to consume health care in a way that's different than uh, what the federal government wants to do wants you to do well rick santorum it's been a pleasure good to hear from you again uh, so we'll Always talk about another friend. two years Ah, uh, no, come on. Well, call me. Have me back on. I'd love to be on your show. I listen. It's nice what about meeting you? Back. I mean, come on now. Oh, I never get out of the bunker. Forget it. Hey, that's right. You don't. How's it? I hope the family's doing well. Everybody's doing amazing well, but uh, after I told them I was going to be on your show, everyone says, why doesn't he, why don't we see Mark anymore? And I said, well, I'll ask him. Come on over. We'd love to see you. Well, maybe we will. All right, my friend. God bless Thank you. you Take friend. care. Bye-bye. All right. Very, very nice man. A real family man. His wonderful wife, Karen. His 17 and a half, what has he got, 18 kids? I'm just kidding. He's got lovely, lovely kids. I've come to know this family. But I haven't been in touch lately, but uh, I really admire them. All right, we'll be right back. Mark Lovin. 
on the air, Mr. Producer, right? Got to give me a hint, brother. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this uh, Kimmel has been, um, Jimmy Kimmel has been attacking uh, Senator Cassidy and others, claiming that health care will be cut and that children like his baby, uh, who needed a heart operation really right, right after birth, would not get heart operations. Now, clearly he does not understand this bill because pre-existing coverage still applies. And it's the individual mandate that is eliminated. And as far as I know, as pointed out at National Review, I'm not aware of any babies who purchase the individual mandate. But it's even more than that. This is the kind of ignorant argument you get all over the place because if the government does it and it's government run and there's lots of government money, then then babies won't die and elderly won't die. I'm going to tell you something. It's exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. The innovations that are available for people who have heart disease or heart defects, I happen to know something about this subject since I have heart disease and so forth. Uh, the vast majority of them come out of the private health care market. And the private health care market is being destroyed. And Jimmy Kimmel doesn't take his son to Canada for health care. He doesn't fly his son to the UK for health care. He doesn't take his son to, to France for health care. It's in the United States. Now what about access to health care? 25% of virtually every state budget goes to Medicaid. Medicaid has as its purpose to cover people who cannot afford health care or who are poor and cannot pay for health care. Is he not aware of Medicaid? Does he know anything about Medicaid? Apparently he doesn't know anything about Medicaid. That's number one, number two, and here's number three. Those of us who want a vibrant Healthcare system. Know as a matter of fact that the way you drive down costs and increase access is through the private sector. We haven't had a mostly private healthcare system in over half a century. I don't even argue for free markets anymore. I argue for freer markets. I believe in free markets, but the psychology in the country and the politics in the country makes it almost impossible. People don't want as much freedom as they can have. They just don't, which is sad, isn't it? But the way you drive down costs is to decentralize health care. The way you drive down costs is to remove government regulations and government control. The way you drive down costs is to make it access, uh, accessible to more and more people is through the private sector. But Jimmy Kimmel doesn't get it, and he never will. You know, relationships with friends and loved ones can take a lot of effort, like coordinating group getaways or even just finding the time to get lunch. You know what doesn't? Surprising them with an out-of-the-blue bouquet from 1-800-Flowers.com. Nothing tops the excitement of a 1-800-Flowers bouquet. And right now, 1-800-Flowers is giving our listeners an exclusive 36 for 36 offer. 36 autumn roses for just $36. That's only a dollar per rose. Now, this beautiful arrangement of fall, red, orange, and yellow roses will leave your loved ones stunned without spending a fortune. These gorgeous roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and they're shipped overnight to ensure freshness. 36 autumn roses for only $36, 
is an unreal deal. There's 1-800-Flowers.com, and then there's everybody else. You know who I trust and depend on for life's most important moments? Yes, 1-800-Flowers.com. To order 36 autumn roses for only $36, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click on that radio icon, and enter the code LEVIN. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N. Harry, the offer ends tomorrow. In the not-too-distant future, I can't get into details, I will have a big announcement for you. No, I'm not transitioning. No, I'm not pregnant. No, I don't, none of that stuff. It'll be a big announcement. I think it'll surprise many, many, many of you. In the not-too-distant future. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Now, President Trump met with... Turkey's uh, Islamo-fascist. Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The man is an Islamo-Nazi. He brutalizes his people. He locks up opposition. Where they're raped, where they're tortured, where they just disappear. He throws in with Iran, lately, lately. He throws in with Putin, lately. He has his own ideas of an Ottoman Empire. The good old days, you know. He rejects Ataturk. If you know any history of Turkey, you can check it out. And this is what I don't get. This is what I don't get. The president does something that's absolutely brilliant with respect to North Korea, which I'll get to in a moment, something I've been advocating here, we've been advocating here. Hopefully he's going to do the same with Iran and rip up that deal. But he meets with Erdogan, and here's what he says. He gives him very high marks. Says it's a Great honor and privilege because he's become a friend of mine to introduce President Erdogan of Turkey. He's running a very difficult part of the world. He's involved very, very strongly, and frankly, he's getting very high marks. He has destroyed the Turkish Republic. He's destroyed it. So it's absolutely appalling to me that the president would say this. Absolutely appalling to me. And yet he said it. So this is very troubling to me. Erdogan. No, Erdogan. That's how it's spelled. At least that's how I choose to pronounce it. And you saw his thugs in Washington, D.C. attacking the Kurds right there on broad daylight, beating them up, kicking them, pouncing on them. Most of them now have been arrested or have had warrants put out for their arrest. 
And yet, the president praises this guy. Please don't call me and justify, well, you know, 4D chess and uh, with hopscotch. No, it's it's foolish. It's absolutely foolish, to my view. And yet, what he's done with North Korea is a very, very good step. More will have to be done, and that is to China, to get to North Korea, but it's a good, good step. I want you to listen to what the president said today with respect to his executive order. Cut four, Mr. Producer. Go. Today I'm announcing a new executive order signed that significantly expands our authorities to target individuals, companies, financial institutions that finance and facilitate trade with North Korea. As I outlined at my address to the United Nations General Assembly, North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile development is a grave threat to peace and security in our world, and it is unacceptable that others financially support this criminal rogue regime. The brutal North Korean regime does not respect its own citizens or the sovereignty of other nations. Our new executive order will cut off sources of revenue that fund North Korea's efforts to develop the deadliest weapons known to humankind. The order enhances the Treasury Department's authorities to target any individual or entity that conducts significant trade in goods, services, or technology with North Korea. And that would include, ladies and gentlemen, the Chinese banks. The Chinese banks. Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, underscores this point. Cut five, go. President Trump's new executive order significantly expands Treasury's authorities to target those who enable this regime's economic activity wherever they are located. For too long, North Korea has evaded sanctions and used the international financial system to facilitate funding for its weapons and mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. No bank in any country should be used to facilitate Kim Jong-un's destructive behavior. This new executive order will authorize Treasury to impose a range of sanctions, such as suspending U.S. correspondent account access to any foreign bank that knowingly conducts or facilitates significant transactions tied to trade with North Korea. These sanctions will be forward-looking and applied to behavior that occurs following today when President Trump signed the executive order. Foreign financial institutions are now on notice that going forward, they can choose to do business with the United States or with North Korea, but not both. That is aimed primarily at China. And they're talking about going forward, forward-looking, following today, because China has been laundering money into North Korea, despite promising otherwise. And so what this executive order does, it allows the Treasury Department to cut off these Chinese banks from doing business with the United States. Now, the truth is, if that were to happen on a broad scale, the Chinese economy would crater. I've talked about the Levin plan for a long time. When it comes to this, going after China's banks and financial system, that's how you affect its economy. And, of course, the military aspects as well as the, uh, as the foreign policy aspects. 
But this is crucially important. It's, it, frankly, it's long overdue, but I'm glad it's taking place. That is, you go after China's financial institutions, you go after their banks, its banks, if in fact they fail to comply with these sanctions on North Korea. Now, it would, the reason why this is important is the same reason it's important to rip up the so-called deal with Iran. And they shouldn't be clever about this. Just say, oh, yeah, you know what, we're going to send this back to the Senate to treat it as a treaty. That's fine. But rip up the deal. And you rip up the deal, ladies and gentlemen, because the deal has baked within it, enshrined within it, the ability of Iran to have nuclear weapons in 10 years. 10 years is nothing. If you have a 10-year-old kid, just look at him or her. They'll be 20 years old at the time. We'll have Iran with nuclear missiles. And remember, Obama removed the requirement that they stop perfecting their ICBMs. Do you know ICBMs aren't even covered under this deal? So, of course, I strongly agree that it needs to be treated as a treaty. But it has to be ripped up in the first instance. And all this talk about, well, Iran will then, you know, it can go wild. It can build nuclear weapons as far as it wants, as much as it wants, and do this, that, and the other. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't even inspect their nuclear sites, which is part of the so-called deal. They said, you have no right, and we're not allowing the U.N. and these inspectors to look at our military bases. Well, that's where most of these nuclear sites are. That's where most of them are. It would allow us to place sanctions on Iran. It would allow us to crush their economy and strangle their economy. Obama created this situation. As you, you heard Rick Santorum in the last hour, and he was exactly right. Under Bush, the Iranian economy was crumbling. It was crumbling because of the sanctions that were in place, and they were tough sanctions. But then Obama comes in, and he breathes life into their economy, he breathes life into this regime. So in order to prevent Iran from becoming the next North Korea, and by the way, there's a big difference. Iran is based on the jihadist fundamentalist ideology. Kim Jong Fatboy, Kim Ung Fatboy, is based on Kim Ung Fatboy. There's no real ideology there. I know he's a communist and all the rest, but there's really no ideology there. He's a he's a genocidal maniac. And Iran doesn't just sit there. Iran invades its neighbors. Iran's export, Iran exports terrorism. Iran is a serious threat to the United States. As is, of course, North Korea. But I'm saying Iran has global aspirations. So it's a big problem. But this is a great move. That is, empowering the Treasury Department to directly, directly threaten the Chinese banks. Now you'll get their attention. There needs to be a lot more, but that will get their attention. Giving South Korea their 100 nuclear warheads back, so to speak, that we removed under George H.W. Bush. Encouraging Japan 
encouraging Japan to install its own nuclear program. Announcing the permanent deployment and presence of a carrier fleet in the South China Sea. Among these other things, that will begin the process of forcing the Chinese to likely force Kim Ung Fatboy out of office, in my opinion. Let's go to Sam, Potomac, Maryland, the great WMAL. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, it's Stan, S-T-A-N. All right, sorry, Stan. <laughs> yes, sir, That's you got great. it. Uh, first of all, I'm listening to you almost every day, and I really enjoy the show, and thank you very much. Thank you for thank the you. ideas. Um, I'm a former union. You're a what, so sir? I didn't hear. Uh, so, sorry? I didn't hear. You're what? I'm a, I'm immigrant from Soviet Union. I came yes, here from Soviet Union. Yep. And uh, I can appreciate and I greatly appreciate the fight that you're doing against this ideology that, you know, creeping into our life. And uh, I actually wanted to comment on what you said about 1% and about this um, you know, common health care or socialist health care that uh, Bernie Sanders wants to advocate. I mean, I can uh, honestly... Uh, I can understand that people kind of don't like uh, to be excluded from insurance based on pre-existing conditions. And so far, I haven't heard any solution on any side. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that, that the principle when they say, you know, oh, let's blame 1% for the, for the all, you know, bad things that happen and let's, uh, let's take from 1% and give to 99%. And that's the way that read that Bolshevik revolution started. I love history, and I know the history of Soviet Union very well. And before the revolution, there were a lot of people that were pretty rich in Russia. And in general, Russia was doing fairly well until Bolsheviks did a coup and uh, did it. But the ideas that they propagate are very similar to Bernie Sanders' ideas. So they always keep, you know majority of population against 1%, and then when 1% is run out of money, they will, they will get after you. You know, so. I, I should more accurately define Bernie Sanders. And, you know, if he wasn't a politician, he would say, you know, Mark, you're right. Bernie Sanders is a Trotskyite. He's a Trotskyite. That is, he, he is, he is a radical ideologue of Marxism. And when you listen to him speak, he's not, he's not a Stalinist, he's not a Maoist, he's not, <clears throat> he's not a Leninist, he's a Trotskyite. And, uh, which makes him enormously dangerous because you have millions of fools in this country who are following along with this guy, who don't even understand how, how magnificent this country is, you know, while they're busy t- pulling down statues and everything. All right, Sam, I, uh, Stan, I apologize. I appreciate your call, we'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, I never watched the show, but maybe some of you do. She's with Megyn Kelly yesterday. Nobody watches her. I guess she'll be on an NBC morning show. 
I just want you to listen how... Well, anyway, listen to this. Cut 15, go. Would you have him on your show? Definitely. I mean, I would not say no to the sitting president of the United States. Really? Absolutely not. Would you? Yeah. You would? Yeah. Now I'm going to get bad tweets. Like, I just, I just, you know, the, he is who he is, and he has enough attention, and he has his, his Twitter account, and he has ways to get his message across. There's nothing I'm going to say to him that's going to change him, and I don't want to give him a platform because it's just, it validates him. And for me to have someone on the show, I, I really, I have to, I have to at least admire them in some way, mm -hmm. and I can't have someone that I feel is, is, not only dangerous for the for the country and for me personally as as a as a gay woman, but as to the world, he he's dividing all of us. And I think I don't want to represent. I just I don't want him on. The you show. know what? You know what? This is a very very stupid woman. He uh, he's dangerous as she because she's a gay woman. The hell is she talking about? And he's dangerous to the country, and he's dangerous to the world, and I don't want him on the show, and there's no way I can change him. These people are supposed to be, what is she? It's a talk show, a comedian show, all those things? It's like these late night shows. You know, the entertainment industry doesn't entertain much anymore, does it, ladies and gentlemen? You're not going to the movies. The movies are getting killed. You've had enough of the movies. You're getting turned off by certain sports because the leagues and the owners won't get their players under control. We don't really give a damn what the players think. They're there to play football, and that's what you're paying for. And I'm sick and tired of being told, well, Alexis de Tocqueville said, Alexis de Tocqueville said nothing to support this. You want to exercise your free speech? You can exercise it all day long. You want to be involved in the civil rights movement? You can be involved in the civil rights movement all day long. But you can't exercise your speech and destroy a business because a business has certain constitutional rights, certain freedom rights, too, I, I should add. You're an employer. They're an employee. It would be like some, it would be like, let's just say, Mr. Producer constantly opening his microphone and talking to the nation and people saying, well, he has the right to speak. He has the right to speak. Not that way he doesn't. Not that way he doesn't, and you can think of a million examples. The, the, the intolerance of somebody like degenerate, degenerate is really amazing. The radicalism, the leftism, the group think in the television industry, in the movie industry, the so-called entertainment industry, is more than obvious, and it is very hostile to an enormous number, number of people in their audience. She wouldn't have Donald Trump on. She wouldn't even talk to Donald Trump. She wouldn't even debate with Donald Trump. Wouldn't even argue with Donald Trump. I'll be right back. hear the stories in the news. The good guy uses a gun to protect his family from criminals. Then he's the one who gets arrested. Thanks to our court system, this happens a lot. That's exactly what can happen to you unless you're fully prepared. Now here's how you can take a simple and rewarding journey 
Concealed Carry and Home Defense Confidence. It's called the 2017 Concealed Carry and Family Defense Guide. And it's from the U.S. Concealed Carry Association, and it's 100% free. You'll learn how to detect attackers before they see you, how to survive a mass shooting, the safest and most dangerous places to sit in a restaurant, how to responsibly own and store a gun even if you have little kids, and a whole lot more. It's 164 pages and comes with a bonus audio version, so you can listen in your car. This life-changing guide is 100% free, and for a limited time, you'll also get a bonus home defense checklist. Visit DefendThem.com right now for 100% free instant access. Again, that's DefendThem.com, DefendThem.com. All right, let's jump in here and see what people are thinking right now. I'm looking for people who disagree, disagree, disagree. Nope. Kevin, Washington, D.C., the great WMAL. Go. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Listen, I, I live outside of Washington, D.C. I own a business here in D.C. in the entertainment business, of all things. And and I think sometimes you lean a little too left for me, um, yeah. just to give you a framework. But right. people like Ellen DeGeneres are so out of touch with the average man on the street, the average person on the street. They have no idea the struggles we go through, the amount of effort that it takes for us to even make a living, Mm-hmm. And what we have to do to get ahead. Um, I, you know, and I think I'm a very blessed person. I have a, a very good business, but I struggle at times. Um, we got right. about 30 employees working for me, and there are times when I don't take a paycheck to make sure all my employees get paid. Mm-hmm. And, and it irritates me to, to watch these golden spoon people uh, treat the rest of us like we have something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And do things wrong. Um, well, well get- I, I think I think that's why people are tuning out. People like her, and they're tuning out movies, and they're tuning out all these things because they know that these enormously wealthy leftists become even more wealthy when we go to their movies, or we watch their plays, or we watch them on TV, and all the rest of it. It's not like there's a boycott, and people, you know, let's boycott all these. It's just that people on their own. So you know what? I'm not watching a football game. You know, my dad fought in World War II. Some jerk takes a knee. I'm not interested in it. Or uh, or her, Ellen DeGeneres. You know, we're such a tolerant and loving country, and the country is very tolerant and loving of all people, including her. Donald Trump hasn't gone after gay people. And uh, because, you know, there's this group think, there is this intolerant mentality, and it's all on the left. It's all on the left. Um People are sick and tired of it. All right, Kevin, keep up the good work. I know I know it's tough out there. My parents owned a small business. They transitioned from one or two to three different types of small businesses. And it was very, very, very hard work. It really was. And you didn't know from week to week how much uh, revenue you would have. Rich, Neptune, New Jersey, the great WABC, go. Mr. Levin, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for Thank taking you. my call. And thank you. I have I have to tell you when I heard that tape of Ellen DeGeneres, it made me want to throw up about how she would not have the president on her show because he was dangerous to her as a gay woman. But me, what made me more sick is mm. the utter lack of 
journalistic integrity for any kind of follow-up by Megyn Kelly as to, can you explain how he is mm-hmm. dangerous to you? That's the type of bias that we have that's just, it, it, it's just, it, it's sickening what we see and, in the and, mainstream and, and media. You, could you hear all the sycophants, the clapping seals in the audience, you know? clapping when she says, you know, he's dangerous to the country, dangerous to her as a gay woman, personally, dangerous to the to the world, and they're all clapping. It, 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 exactly. It, it's like it, this, this group mentality where it's just, you know, let's continue piling on. It's the cool thing to do. And Obviously. they pretend that they're better than us, they pretend that they're smarter than us, and they pretend that they're more tolerant than us. They're none of these things. They're, they're, they're all about tolerance as long as we think the way they do. All right, my friend. I appreciate your call. Nick, Woodridge, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Hi, Mark. I was just wondering about your opinion if, if the United States would let the Japanese become more involved, giving them their nuclear warheads and changing their military status. Well, start. I've said that Japan should have... A nuclear arsenal, uh, the South Koreans should, and they used to, absolutely. And that'll get China's attention mighty fast, and that we ought to have a permanent carrier fleet in the South China Sea to counter their phony islands, in addition to these economic pressures. And this uh, it's not because I invented this idea, because I, I went back, I remembered what Reagan did in order to uh, destroy the Soviet Union, to bring it down economically and militarily without a war. And I'm just saying, we can do the same thing with China. We absolutely can. Do you, do you think the Chinese and the Koreans still have a memory of what the Japanese did from World War II? Of course they did. Of course they do. But so what? I mean, what are we supposed to do? We're, we're in alliance with Germany. Do we forget what took place in World War II? Do we forget that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor? I mean, I know what Japan did in China. It was it was grotesque. I know what Japan did to the Koreans. It was grotesque. But uh, you know, we got to deal with what's going on today. And, let, and I'll tell you what: what the North Korean government's doing to the North Koreans is far worse than anybody else has ever done to the Koreans. Yes, Hello. I've read about it. All right, sir. Thank you for your call. Let's keep rolling, baby. Let's go to Barry in Florida. WSKY, go. Hi, Mark. Uh, I called you a number of months ago. I was the guy who told you not only did I admire your intellect, but your uh, use of humor, irony, sarcasm, and ridicule. And, boy, uh, sometimes you have me rolling on the floor with laughter from the way you portray some of our politicians. Uh, less humorous, though, is the subject of what is the Trump Justice Department doing now? They, they let Lois Lerner go after she violated the the right of assembly and free speech of Americans uh, to get 501c4 organizations. She deleted her emails. She colluded with the Federal Election Commission and the Justice Department. Now we have uh, Hillary's emails. Now, let me, let me being... slow you down. This sets an important point. I mean, yeah, right. What does it take to charge these people? I mean, you just, you just gave a, a long list, beautiful long list. I, I, I don't know to answer your question. Well, uh, something's got to get. And by the way, they ought to uh, do something about Mr. George Soros. If if they can, Treasury Department and the Justice Department can do something about 
terrorist uh, governments and, and banks that are supporting terrorists, why not George Soros? Well, can you imagine what Mueller would find on Soros, potentially, the way he's going after this guy, Manafort? Uh, it's unbelievable. Here's a guy who sponsors violence on the streets of America and streets throughout Europe so his hedge funds can go uh, down and make money on its way down. Uh, and uh, he's colluding with uh, Obama's uh, organizing for America, which Obama just said yesterday he was going to use to mobilize his people again if the Republicans even think about doing something about Obamacare. Uh, this is what's going on in America, and the Justice mm -hmm. Department is sitting on its hands. I don't get it. Yeah. All right, my friend. I agree. It's too late to get into this in any deep way, but I'm going to read this to you. Hillary Clinton calls for the end of the Electoral College. You notice, if they can't win constitutionally and legitimately, they want to burn the whole thing down. You notice that? But that's not my focus. I want to read this. This is from the Washington Times, hardly a left-wing uh, news outlet. Nearly a year after gaining three million more votes than Donald Trump, but still losing the election, Hillary Clinton says it's time to get rid of the Electoral College and award the presidency based simply on who gets the most votes. Should we elect a president based on simply who gets the most votes? Now, we know why there was an Electoral College put in place. They told us why, among other reasons, to ensure that the small states had representation or the candidates would basically campaign in the big, most populated states, in fact, the big, most populated counties. And the rest of the country would be irrelevant. Nobody would ever campaign in the small states, Democrat, Republican, it wouldn't matter. And the truth of the matter is the Electoral College is there to counter the popular vote, depending on the circumstances. So I have a question. Maybe we'll carry this over tomorrow. If you're a populist nationalist, with emphasis on populist in this regard, don't you agree with Hillary Clinton? See my point, Mr. Producer? If you're a populist nationalist, not a constitutional conservative, or a nationalist populist, I want to talk about the populist part. Don't you agree with Hillary Clinton that we ought to get rid of the Electoral College? And under those circumstances, Hillary Clinton would be president and John Kerry would have been president. But isn't that fair? The popular will. The franchise. While Trump would have campaigned this way, Trump would have campaigned... Okay, put all that aside. Do you support the Electoral College or not? If you're consistent in your populism... You would say, no, the popular vote should rule. Now, under the Liberty Amendments for Convention of States, I've also recommended repealing the 17th Amendment, which was passed, obviously, shortly after the 16th Amendment, the federal income tax, because the 17th Amendment requires the states to allow the direct election of senators through the popular vote. And my position is, no, the framers had it right that for the most part, the Senate should be representative of the state legislatures. And that was the intent. But now it's directly elected. Do you think the progressives were right when they pushed the 17th Amendment <clears throat> to eliminate state representation in the United States Senate in Congress, period, through the United States Senate? Or do you agree with Theodore Roosevelt, 
the Republican progressives, the Democrat progressives, who are populists. That know we need the direct election of senators, we need the direct election of presidents, the popular vote should win the day. And I would argue that if you're a populist, you would agree with the progressives on this. That we should eliminate the Electoral College. That we should eliminate. Uh, should we, we should retain the 17th Amendment. Right? This is a big difference between populism and republicanism. We believe in republicanism. Right? All right. Anyway, some food for thought. I'll be right back. Lovin. You know, it's hard to believe how far 2017 is almost over. It's September. You know, tomorrow's the first day of fall, Mr. Producer. I always remember that because today's my birthday. And I want to thank all the people calling, wishing me a happy birthday. It would be a boring show if we just let everybody say, happy birthday, Mark, happy birthday, and so forth. So you're going to have to suffer with me professionally for another 10 years because I have announced when I hit 70, I'm retiring from everything. Well, it's the way it goes. Maybe I'll keep writing books. You never know. You know, it's hard to believe, though, how much of 2017 is over. Time doesn't stand still, so don't waste another minute. Join AMAC now. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is the leading conservative voice for Americans age 50 and up. And they are resolved to continue their mission to restore America's moral compass, to make America a better place for our children, and to save America from liberal ideology. And as an AMAC member, you'll also gain access to a variety of exclusive benefits and discounts that will help you save money. From car insurance and Medicare plans to discounts on hotels and car rentals and more, AMAC is the organization to join, and you really need to check out these discounts and benefits. They're a voice for conservatives in Washington. You have exceptional benefits and discounts. What's not to love about this this organization? Join AMAC now at www.amac.us. That's www.amac.us. AC.US or call AMAC toll free 888 262 2006. That's 888-262-2006. The Association of Mature American Citizens, the benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join AMAC today. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Happy New Year. Not just all my Jewish friends, but to all of you out there. I went to Temple today. For two and a half hours. The rabbi was absolutely terrific. I didn't even fall asleep. He was really, really good. Mel, Fort Myers, Florida, the great WFSX. Go. Hey, thanks so much for taking my call, Mark. Uh, I just wanted to first make a comment. I find it ironic and sad that the same people who say Trump colludes with Russia supports Antifa that carries the communist flag around like it's uh, the most patriotic thing to do. That's a good Uh, point. Now, with that being said, I am a capitalist. I am a conservative. I've called on your show before. I'm as conservative as can be. Would the Republicans and maybe yourself be open to the idea of a single-payer system 
as an option for states. Like, I'm a states' rights person, so... Well, Mel, if a state takes money and they want to do a single-payer plan, I I mean, and I don't live in the state, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, see, I can can see, like, some uh, state stupid enough with uh, Jerry Brown, like California. Yeah, California, exactly. Yes. You know, where they can option out of uh, having tax money from them, Medicare, Medicare. Well, listen to me. Remember Vermont, Vermont without all this, but Vermont went with the socialist system, and it was crushing them, so they withdrew on their own from their socialist system. Oh, well, yeah, speaking of Vermont, one of the biggest losers I've ever seen in my life is Bernie Sanders. If you follow his record and his life, the reason why he's such a big government person is because he's made a career off the government. He has he's never had a career. He's never had a job, a, a long-lasting job. So the only thing he does know is, gov- does is he knows his government. And he has so two I mean, or three homes. How do you do that? <laughs> he does it with the taxpayers' dollars. Now, mm-hmm. but I was the only thing that I was just saying is, I, I don't think that as Republicans and conservatives, we should object the idea of single payer in the sense that if a state wants to do it, let them I agree. Do it. listen, let them. listen, I'm not going to stop them. I would argue strongly against it. But you're right. If you're going to block grant the monies out and that's what a state wants to do. And a bunch of these blue states, well, that's fine. But I would have one caveat, Mel. They would have to agree that the federal taxpayers, that is, taxpayers of other states, don't have to bail them out when they go bankrupt, because they will. That's what California is trying to do right now. If they can I know, but there needs to be a caveat that you and I and all the millions and millions of us who have nothing to do with those state governments are not going to bail them out when they go bankrupt, because they will. Well, you have an ear of the Congress, so, I mean, you're exactly... Nah, they hate my guts. Hey, that's why you're doing what you're doing. What you're doing is doing a great job at it. Thanks, Mark. God bless, Mel. Thank you. Let's continue. Uh, Let's go to Chris, South Bend, Indiana, on the mark. Well, Chris, we can't go there. I'm sorry. I blew it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, again, happy Rosh Hashanah. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. I'll see you tomorrow. I guess I'll be 60 years old in one day. God bless each and every one of you, and I am blessed to have you out there. Take care.